spookiest time of the year, there are a few guidelines all ghosts and goblins should follow. Always stay on sidewalks. Never go to a stranger's house. And never go out alone. What the hell are you doing? We have to leave here. What's the matter? What's happened? You were right. I made a mistake. We should have never come to this house. We have to leave now. Oh, you're freaking me out here. Get the kids. Pack the car. We have to leave. Welcome back to 31 for 31. It is day 25. We're coming at you hot with our 25th pick of the month. 2012's supernatural horror film Sinister, directed by Scott Derrickson and written by C. Robert Cargill and starring my man, Ethan Hawke. What do we all think of this one, guys? I'm not Cody Mason. (laughs) I am Chris Bonnier. We're getting really bad at that. (laughs) I'm Jamie Lansdowne, and I'm with my co-host. Cody Mason. And Chris Boniello, but <laughs> you'll never tell which one's which. I'm Cody, and that's Chris. Uh, that's just a little sinister setup that we thought for for today. But uh, you know, we're in the middle of a uh, of a beautiful sandwich for you today. We'll explain what the other loaf of bread is after. But we're we're jumping into our last week here with a with what is scientifically not proven <laughs> but clickbait article proven to be the scariest infographic movie of listed time. yeah so in a bad research study with a bad sample size and a bad <laughs> definition of scare this is and a pretty bad movie. list of movies right. by just using the imdb most <laughs> scary movies. a selection of movies was chosen to be a good index for what is the scariest movie based off of bpm heart rate and uh, with the most average, uh, ec- you know, the average highest BPM for a duration of a movie in this research study was Sinister. So that got a good level of bump in reevaluation in pre- recent years because of that, which I think is good because we think it deserves reevaluation, but not for the reason of being <laughs> the scariest movie ever made. I think I have reasons to believe why it does meet that BPM c- threshold, but. Uh, But yeah, certainly uh, uh, not a research study that the 31 for 31 TM podcast espouses (laughs) as scientific fact. And I had never seen this movie before. This is my first time going in it. He'd only seen Sinister 2 30 times. (laughs) He's just a big Sin 2, Sin City fan. But uh, I did a double header upon the rewatch. I watched Sinister 1 and then I went right into Sinister 2. And uh, a little bit of a drop. You know what? Both movies have James Ranzone doing what he can, and one of them is a good movie. And I'll let you be the judge. You know, but I won't disparage the sequel. But I, uh, I will just say that I definitely think this is the superior entry in the Sinister saga, and I think that a big part of that is because my man Ethan Hawke as Allison Oswald is selling it, fucking killing it. Yeah, this is a movie that's also a creepy, creepy attic movie like The Changeling. And it is also a movie where a overqualified actor is in the driver's seat selling a concept that could have been far undersold by a different leading man. He brings so Robin in his beautiful, beautiful cardigan with elbow patches. Just 
makes me feel safe. We could spend 40 minutes talking about Ethan Hawke being an incredible actor, or we could spend 80 minutes talking about that sweater, which is maybe the co-lead. <laughs> yeah. 31 minutes for 31 stitches. Yeah, this is it. This movie is beautiful, as Jamie's about to describe, because it's just like a serious sequence of limited events. It's the perfect Blumhouse movie in my mind, just because of how scarce uh of a you know of a of a plot <laughs> there is but it's just a real roller coaster headed straight down for the whole time how scarce of a budget i mean three million bucks three million dollars i mean yeah. made a killing i'm sure most of it went to ethan hawk i don't yeah. think it even Can did get... i think he i think he went low and he got like points i don't think he took his quote on this movie i think he got sure. points and made a shit ton on the back end but i think that's you know part of the blumhouse strategy and i think it works out in this way is that the filmmakers were allowed to just go ham and go wild and tell this very dark and compelling story, you know, about a true crime writer as I was getting into a true crime writer, Ellison Oswald, let's just say unwisely moves into the house where a murder took place and a family was hung in the backyard. And he's basically well, and more unwisely doesn't tell his wife yeah. that that's happening. And she does no Small research. Quibble. Own, yeah, I don't I don't get how she doesn't look up the house they're about to move into. He seems to have a history. She's characterized as being willfully ignorant enough to let that slide. I think so. But she finds out to uh, to a great uh, you know confrontation later on because that's a great move for a family. It takes a while for the truth to come out for sure. But anyway, he is. Um, true crime writer who in a great little exposition scene with the sheriff that comes by uh, had a big hit Kentucky blood where he basically solved the case and uh, subsequent novels of his true crime novels of his were not as successful and maybe some murderers got go got off the hook or whatever. He, he didn't get it right the other two times. So this is sort of his last chance at big hit and some fame and as his wife tells him, like, you know, you don't need to do this. You know, maybe your 15 minutes are up. But he is determined. He's gone a little Jack Torrance. I just need some peace and quiet, a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and nice maybe sweater. move into a very creepy house. And uh, soon enough, he finds a box of uh, Super 8 home movies in the, in the attic, along with the scorpion. And just starts diving into his book. And unraveling a mystery he finds super aid video of the family being murdered in his backyard he finds another another film of what is it the next one is the uh family barbecue i think is the next one where a family yeah. is burned alive in a car in a garage he picks up the phone and is about to dial 911 or he does dial 911 he does he calls him up he calls, well, him he calls up, up like the local police yeah, station he calls or the something. local police department and he's about to say listen this is, i'm a bit in over my head i think you should do the right thing critical mistake looks at his book forlornly <laughs> uh and says you know what i'm gonna this is it this is my big this is my last chance and tries to solve the mystery himself Deadly. i've got this under control with <laughs> yeah. a killer on the loose but i think killed four people in my house and i'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm kind of blabbling on about the the plot but i the thing is that i find the character you know not just a performance by ethan hawk which sells it but the how the character is written i think is very compelling and sort of in contrast to maybe the less active protagonist of the changeling where he has more of a personal stake in what is going on like not just professionally but also personally he wants the book to be successful 
he goes a little Walter White and saying, you know, I'm doing this for the family, but he's obviously doing it for himself and he ends up paying for it. And I think that for very me, much the uh, Skylar, this was for me kind of reveal later on. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, we talked about this in horror movies where you need a very compelling reason for to stick with the horrible, spooky events going on. And I found him like, you know, him going in down this rabbit hole. Very compelling and interesting. I don't know what Chris. What do you think? I mean, and to jump into that much later on too. Once you actually see the previous house he's living in, you realize how much is kind of at stake and how much money he can make if this book takes off. Because that's a nice looking house. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a big reveal of like, damn. Okay, <laughs> you can yeah, rent it out a of room. Yeah, it's a mansion with a yeah. Know, this a Jane Austen wa- watching quiz. this for the first time, like. It, I mean, it really brought me back to watching the Blair Witch for the first time with when like a friend's older brother brought the tape to a, you know, Halloween party. The much discussed Chris's yeah. older friend's <laughs> older brother who seems uh, so to have many ruined of his entire childhood. And so many of them yeah. putting just putting They're movies legion. on it <laughs> as kids, and yeah, I I mean, watching this at home is definitely a different experience than. If I saw this in the theater, I would have been probably scared shitless. It's just, it's, it's got huge, huge noise drops too. And I think that's you yeah. know, part of the review of this movie that puts it in that 60% icky Rotten Tomatoes range is because we have, you know, a reliance on two, two narrative threads where you have like a very atmospheric, creepy, disturbing type of horror that is what we would probably all agree is the most, you know, compelling and the stuff that Ethan Hawke connects to the most. And then, you know, a- another kind of through line that oftentimes I think amps that up that ha- and oftentimes is to its detriment of having very, very by the books, efficient jump scares that are very noisy, very in your face, quite literally in your face that sometimes start to feel cheap and start to make you feel disconnected because you're trying to connect on an emotional level to this movie because it's taking itself seriously. And those kind of punches sometimes feel like you're manipulating me. I thought we had a contract here (laughs) that I could really commit and pay attention to the frame and commit to how much you were crafting this movie. And if you're going to throw a boogeyman's face at me, now you're breaking the contract a little bit. So I think that's the general complaint for this movie. But I think it happens. It happens few enough times that I think it just is a bit major distraction from how much they do keep in line with the contract of, uh, of uh, you know, drawing us into the details yeah. for the rest of it. And this this felt like you were going on like a really fun haunted hayride that just has a few moments of like the cheapest haunted house <laughs> in it. And and they work. They totally work in the moment. They kind of have a singular purpose like this is very much just going in a straight line of what it is for those types of scares. And I think it works on, on a rewatch. I'm not sure how well they'll work because I'll it, depending on how the timing and the cutting is, maybe it still will catch me a little bit, but I'll be a little more prepared. And I don't really believe that a bunch of those noises were diegetic. So it, sometimes it's, you know, it breaks that wall a little bit of, wait, am I hearing what Ethan Hawke is hearing? Am I Yeah, especially in the Super 8, audio? it's like, who's screaming? Yeah. Is it just yeah, the Norwegian black death metal that's in the soundtrack? Or am I hearing the family scream? You know, it's it's it blurs that line a lot. But it, it definitely, it I mean, it's definitely terrifying. It, it works as a ride. I think the mythology of some of it, as I was trying to 
follow along with the story. And also, once you get to the point of having a few red herrings and then a few of those scares, I started paying less attention to what the actual mythology was and more being prepared to be scared again. And yeah. so I think it loses a little bit in that where it, it tries almost too hard. I, I would have I wouldn't have minded less of like the Vincent D'Onofrio <laughs> exposition of of like Hey, he got in just... for his Skype rates. <laughs> I love was, uh, yeah. He's actually on i he's actually on iChat. <laughs> I went back and double checked because at first I thought it was just a quick time movie play. It's <laughs> no, iChat. It's iChat old... called on your contacts list. It's a real deal. And it works well, but there's some more of it that like y- you see such a how su- how good of a detective Ethan Hawke's Ellison character is that I kind of didn't need the exposition there. I would have rather a couple scenes of him doing a bit more of that detective work as a, you know, this lone researcher on some of this. Hey, George uh, C. Scott call, flips but... through atlases all by himself. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like, you know, it's inspired by the ring, you know, the director and writer have both been inspired by the ring, you know, just in terms of, you know, both the research and mystery element and the idea of, you know, the text, of the celluloid becoming real and, you know, actually something sneaking out out of the projection, you know, and the image having that power. I think that's all really interesting. I think that the home movies aspect of it being this reveal that we're watching and immediately having eyeline matches with with Ethan Hawke to really empathize with his kind of discovery is the most you know exciting part to have it be revealed that specifically it's uh bagul you know <laughs> and specifically it's this type of haunting with children and specifically you know we are going to have these kind of creatures emerge because it takes the form of a, a dog a, you know a, a scorpion or you know a, a snake it, it's all somewhat related to me to being like oh yeah do people remember that pazuzu is the demon from the exorcist <laughs> it's like no it was just demonic it was something that was a cult it was something that definitely was beyond so i agree that the over explanation you know trim trim a couple minutes but uh ultimately it's just about the images you create that you know are more distilled and and yeah to me it's like i I go back and forth with it like the scares totally work and ethan hawk is selling it all i'm gonna watch him go through it all but there's part of me that wishes there was a bit more ambiguity to it. I didn't need as much of a descriptor of like, this is the saw puppet in <laughs> full size man form. Like I just, there there's part of it that takes away that it would almost, for me, the scares would live longer in me if this was something a bit more intangible and that I was sitting what, like on this chat right now and something could be weird and, and it would start to freak me out versus something so defined as a character's face like that yeah and i think a lot of people complain that you know an ambiguous ending where someone could be a cultist versus a demon could be a better answer for this but i think just based off of the and the thing with it being a demon and and being more supernatural it just there was there's a bit i think too much definition and then or if you want to save that to the end and have that jump scare for me at the end there I will say from watching the trailer now, it ruins so many of those. Yeah, don't watch the trailer if you haven't seen this movie for sure. Like, I can't imagine that that was the trailer that came out. But it it gives away (laughs) like three of the biggest jump scares in the trailer. Like, it gives away so much. I think that the biggest thing that this movie is trying to do in terms of, you know, relating it to, okay, we can't just show murders and have people be upset is the relationship between much like in It Chapter One, 
you know, for, for a more recent example, just the benefit of having something projected that is a snapshot in time that is the past relating with the present. So like a demon being frozen on a screenshot of, you know, a past film from the 60s turning and looking at Ethan Hawke through that text or children, you know, looking in a recording that was just taken and being projected to beckon someone into the netherworld of the screen, you know, kind of like it jumps out in the garage and it chapter one. I think that's the main reason for these things existing. And it's all kind of rooted in like, wasn't it cool when Sadako jumped out of <laughs> the well into the screen, you know, and I, I, I get that. And I like the texture of the super eight giving something new to that. But um, yeah, I think that's, those are the experiences that make this movie creepy is the, is the creaks and crawls of like, Oh, okay. How does that relate to you've opened a portal as you watch this, after you watch this and anything you do to do heavy legwork into the mystery of, okay, exactly why this is happening. You know, any movie that does that too far only starts to uh, (laughs) unravel. If I had, if I had had a book opened up to reveal like, oh, the cycle of Black Phillip every 20 (laughs) years, he does this and he's a goat for this long or whatever. Who needs that? We're able to infer that when we see a goat talking to someone and turning into a sexy man that, oh, we've gone down the wrong path. We don't need we don't need to be lectured too much by Vincent D'Onofrio. I think the, the thing that kind of like I love about the film and, you know, we can talk about some nitpicks in a little bit, but you can tell that and they they talk about the genesis of this film is that this is clearly two people who love horror who are like what what's like something creepy like what's the creepiest thing we could have like it's inspired by like you said the ring like a nightmare that uh the screenwriter had cargill had and they like apparently he like met with this director and they just like had a bunch of drinks and were like like they were just like fleshing this idea out and it just feels like that's what the film is so that it, it's it's drawing from all these great like uh some stephen king uh, you know, like The Ring, um, a few other, like, uh, you know, even The Changeling. Um, I think Scott Derrickson has said that The Changeling is one of his favorite films, even. So, like, there is a queer, like, heritage to this film that these people are drawing from and just, like, throwing it all onto the screen of, like, what's, like, the, what's, like all these unnerving things. And they create this new, you know, it, it's it's a lot to ask for filmmakers or it's it's always a gamble to create, like, a new villain in a sense like they're essentially trying to create like the next freddy krueger yeah and you know mileage may vary but uh bagul is a pretty cool i would say villain in the canon yeah yeah he's but, no- and but i just almost think you don't you don't need it like these scares are so visceral and work so well it is like a you know a horror ride it's it's you know, I don't need so much of the depth and, and the knowledge of it. This feels like I'm I'm riding like a muscle car of a horror movie. Yeah. Like it just it just wants to go in a straight line and it wants to go fast and I'm I'm just ready. I for think it. it needs to in order for this movie to end, it needs what you know the directors and writers described as like that evil Willy Wonka character, mm-hmm. that Pied Piper character. Yeah. And you know, I think that they give him so little to, you know, he doesn't speak. He doesn't really beckon for any action or behavior. He's just kind of present in the background. And then in the end, you know, is seen to be kind of a ringleader that has power over the children. I think, you know, maybe, you know, the the scenes that we have explaining him outside of his own presence, whatever, you know, maybe a couple jump scares <laughs> of his face getting thrown in the frame, whatever. But 
I think that's the appropriate amount for me, you know, despite having to think like, does a demon put on pants? Yeah, where does he get his, but that's just his me. suit? Um, <laughs> yeah, he has a nice suit. But, uh, you know, I think he, he has a cool look. I, I know that it's kind of inspired by just kind of like searching around like black metal makeup and stuff, you know, but <laughs> him. Yeah, he said he bought the he bought the rights to an image he found on Flickr. Yeah. For $500. Why not? Why not? And that's the kind of thing where seeing him in the reflection of a pool or seeing him in the background. I do the love mirror, that shot. Like those create great images. Those create things that when they're turning and looking at you become so creepy. And again, it's the kind of thing that these are horror lovers just creating a new bad. And, you know, I think they probably overshot their wad on, okay, let's create a mythology just for sequel potential. But, um, you know, if you take the real scare moments rather than the exposition moments at their face value, I think he fits well into, you know, the 2010s Babadooks and and, and Black Phillips and new creeps and crawlies. Um, the, you know, Mr. Boogie, <laughs> we're on a relationship calling him Mr. Yeah. Boogie, not that cool. Um, without, you know, maybe being as serious of a fan favorite or whatever, because he gets to split the work. He gets to split the work with a child cutting their father's throat <laughs> is also j- creepy stuff. You don't need... A bad guy, like Chris was saying, to be, uh, you know, necessarily puppet mastering for that to be creepy. But I think he cements it in terms of like, OK, we need there to be a ringleader for this to connect at the end. And the ending is a little explosive in a lot of ways. But um, I think in order for this to land, you need a you need a pilot for that shit. That's <laughs> a bunch of crazy ghost face. Guys. I agree with that. And yeah, yeah, the uh, I didn't need them shushing me for so long. They were really quiet kids, <laughs> and they run so the, slow. I, you know, that's that's one thing I was talking to Jamie about with the the kids creeping up on Ethan Hawke in slow motion. But I like he cool I liked, effect. Yeah. but uh, yeah. you know, just a little little. Done. It, I mean, it worked for me. We'll see what you know on the second watch. Some of these things where I'm I'm kind of I was looking all over the frame for Bagul and other things. Right. And this wasn't a Lake Mungo or a Haunting Hill House where he's creeping into every last frame. I was looking too, Chris. Like, did I miss anything? Most of the time, there's a lot of misdirects, and you're not <laughs> you're not too creeped out. Was the children being the the perpetrator a twist to you guys? Like, where did you guys? I mean, Chris, you just saw it. Yeah. Cody, I don't know. I I saw it with some friends when I was in theaters, who all looked at me in the opening scene when people are being hot being like what the fuck did you bring me into? yeah this came out <laughs> they were very this came out for but... me in college and i watched it on a break i think alone and you know got a little creeped out and i think you know if you have the convention of here's a series of events that seem lightly connected in these home movies where families are killed kind of ritualistically together and one kid goes missing the assumption kind of always has to be like how did that kid get children of the corn into into thinking this or the other? <laughs> I, I I litmus test that by my wife watching the first frames of this movie of the family getting hanged and her saying like who's doing that and I explained the circumstances of the killing and at the end she said who ended up doing it and I explained Begul and the kids and she was like yeah I knew that kid did it and I was like you didn't even see that kid or anything else so you know I I, I think that was. A little yeah, my, telegraph. My child death count works. is flying. Off I know the radar you. Now. You really, you know, especially soul-eating children. This is this is just like a whole new list. <laughs> yeah, the soul-eating part I didn't really get, but uh, no, I did. I did not see that twist coming that it was the kid, and I just don't think. I don't know if there was any way to actually see it. It didn't feel like there was hints or anything at it. I wasn't. I wasn't really even looking for it that much. Those hands look like they're adult hands on that night. You know, it's a big kid well, hand. Yeah, when. When they pull him down, but I just thought that, that was 
that the dead kids were just kind of haunting in the house. Like they're, you know, just living in this house somehow and they're, mm-hmm. and they're just pulling Ethan Hawke down and that there is some other thing pulling the strings. Yeah, or maybe they're good ghosts, you know. Yeah. I didn't pick it up the first time either. And I, I think I was just so engrossed in the mystery that I was, like I almost like wasn't even thinking that there was a solution to it. Like that there was a perpetrator. I just assumed that, Bagul was like somewhat responsible, even though it makes perfect sense when you think about you take a step back. You're like, oh, yeah, like, well, who was doing it? I guess like the kids missing, obviously. And we were we were overmarketed too, right? Like we we knew that there was going to be this element and he was going to have some like effective non mask wearing individual that, you know, had Mm -hmm. uh, a supernatural presence that. You know, watching it objectively now, it starts to play out a lot more of like, I was looking more for my yellow king. Yeah, you were you were you were (laughs) on. You know, a lot of a lot of things get telegraphed in that trailer so that they get people to go. And you know what? They made a lot of money, so maybe we shouldn't. I mean, I'm so yeah, glad hey, I watched that trailer that. afterwards. I can't imagine like seeing that trailer. I was like, this is everything. Like what? <laughs> it gives away, especially because the movie. I, I I'm mad that I watched the trailer as well because I think watching this totally fresh, not even knowing that there's a supernatural element, would be such a fun reveal. And like is shocking. Like I think is was meant to be shocking. Yeah, the first the first shot I saw of the the pool when it like when he starts turning, I was like, oh man, like what like what is this? And then yeah, and then the <laughs> shot where Bagul is on the MacBook and, and that's turns a great his head. shot. That's the one. I that can't I, believe that they yeah. have that in the trailer because if yeah, I it's, didn't, it's a fucking tragedy. That was yeah. A bunch of those shots work so well, and it, that's why I feel mm-hmm. like this is just yeah. I had for, managed to forget about that yeah. one. I was just like, oh, geez, god damn it! You know, it, uh, it, it just it hits but, a ten, and, it, and I knew it was hitting me. I I had said this to Jamie earlier, like that I started going down logic rabbit holes of the movie of like well that wouldn't work and this doesn't work and this home video like wouldn't have film leader in the front of it because you wouldn't splice that in because i of how scared i was actually getting that's the uh the problem with the sequel for me is that once you kind of start to pick it apart it does kind of fall apart it just becomes like, the power know, I think of the, the home more... movies and how creepy of a family dying you can have and freezing them or yeah, a exactly. gator just ends up being like piranha three double d where it's like did you get what we liked about the first one or are you just throwing more piranhas yeah, at us? it's like saw yeah. it becomes saw where the sequels it's like it all becomes about the traps when i think the home bo- movies in this are obviously like a, an awesome feature but i think their best is like these sort of scares along the way and not the main feature the thing driving you yeah the throat cutting one is more effective than the more pageanted lawnmower one because of how it's dreadful rather than surprising and i think that's yeah that's probably why i would say this meets that bpm limit and is described as scariest just based off of people being anxious because like to this movie's detriment i think that it throws you off because it's too two scary streaks at once like i mentioned like it's got you in this dreadful landscape where you're just supposed to be disturbed and it's got you like against its own structure sometimes throwing in some really hokey trailer jump scares and i think based off of that viewer discrepancy and expectation people are uneasy because they don't know am i supposed to experience this based off of how i watched the last three scenes where things are just dreadful or am i going to get another very hollywood jump scare mixed in (laughs) i don't know what to expect because this isn't following any distinct formula especially at the end when it turns into somewhat of a conventional 
horror ending with those beats. The rhythm of this movie is so atonal and kind of uh, syncopated, as I will say, as a pretentious word. That it, it, <laughs> I think that's why people's beats, you know, BPMs were really uh, bumping off. I agree. There is a weird whiplash in a sense where you are getting driven into the story and it's just dread dread and then it's like throwing these jump scares at you maybe in a way that is like you said manipulative and it does throw you off and i think in some cases it's effective and it's sort of paid off in a way like yeah like i do like the lawnmower one a great deal but when begul just throws his head into the screen it feels like a 3d gag that i <laughs> yeah it's a cheap you know like a jump scare you know anyone can you can scare anyone with a jump scare essentially at any time you just have a loud noise and you're naturally gonna i jump. think it works in the in the attic scene though i i uh, i didn't you know yeah it didn't the first bother one me for there. sure yeah and this yeah in, yeah, that first one in the attic scene. The last one is fun. insulting. The, the one at the end. <laughs> yeah, the last one. The, studio the last note. One is studio like, note, apparently. Do it again. So. Yeah, and I think this... The last one is like a waiting for, you know, it's when like Rage Against the Machine would hit on like the credits or something. Like it, it just had already become a different <laughs> movie now. Yeah, and I, I think this one, um, you know, reminds me a little bit of It Follows in its more disquieting, uncomfortable, dreadful moments that are just like so anti-jump scare, but so atmospherically discomforting in, you know, and it relates a lot to the music of like disaster pieces soundtrack to like, again, like the very weird syncopated soundtrack that Ethan Hawke is listening to when he's trying to burn the evidence of the movies when he finds out he's gone too far. Is this very, very anxiety-inducing kind of like a film reel skipping and it's like something that again you're just watching a dude in a cardigan burn some stuff with close-up insert shots of burning but it's crafted in a way that's like oh my god like what is going to happen i'm so anxious and i'm just watching a person do something rather turnkey and telling his wife to get kids in a car and that's that to me was like the most anxious moment of that movie even while ghosts are chasing him even while his daughter picks up an axe over his head like just that kind of crafting around the circumstances as a whole going sour and, you know, showing his reveal of knowing that he's gone too far in this big demonstrative way. Like, mm-hmm. that's how you ramp up tension. You don't have to do any, you, you know, you earn it in those kind of ways. So I would point to that scene as where I was like, this is something in another movie that if not done mm-hmm. this well, would have just been like, oh, this is a safe scene. This is a scene where I can just relax and not think about anything. But in that one, it's so involving, even when he's doing something like that, because of how it, his performance, yeah. how they shoot it, how they add music. It, it's the perfect kind of, you know, symphony of discomfort to make me like lean out of my chair a little bit. Earned is a great word for it. And I think the film earns a lot of, respect for me just from it develops its character its lead character it's giving them a compelling reason to be diving into this it has a great side character in deputy so-and-so who kind of is like the fanboy like sidekick who becomes involved and kind of becomes like the angel on his shoulder the voice of reason being like you know and like, isn't a caricature he's not a he's like not at all he's a guy kind of fleshed a out guy. character like he, yeah, for sure. yeah and it, it, it there's a real reason for him to be around and you get some exposition there and I also love that they 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 do add in these scenes that these character moments with Ethan Hawke's character where like he puts on the tape of like his first book and you just see the contrast of him like, you know, I was doing it for the justice back then. Maybe a little on the nose, but like I think some <laughs> yeah. other films might get rid of those scenes or like be like, we got to cut some time because the film is, a, I think it's like what, hour 45 or something like that. 
Well, and then there's the scene, there's the other one where he's sleeping and like the interviews playing and mm-hmm. they're talking, talking about, about family, yeah. family. And it, and it, I think it just works because it's Ethan Hawke. Like he's just, <laughs> yeah. he's just such a good actor. You just believe him as this like dad character that I'm like, yeah, he wears fine. that cardigan well. <laughs> yeah. And he, it's like Jack Nicholson in The Shining where like you're having these scenes where somebody's over drinking, becoming, you know, borderline crazed by ghosts and all this kind of stuff. But he can still manage to have a conversation with his spouse where he's not just playing that as you would expect. Like there's still like love in his voice. There's still, you know, not mm-hmm. over shouting. There's still a degree of like bargaining and back and forth and compromise mm-hmm. in the argument. Like it's never just like, I need to do this. You get the hell out of here. Like it's, you know, conversations, arguments end well. They don't, you know, it just feels very <laughs> lived in. And despite, you know, him not having, you know, no offense to Juliet Rylance who plays his British wife, you know, she, she is a little bit more one note in her persistence which is fine and she doesn't get given a lot to do but ethan hawk really lifts those conversations that could have been this classic like you've gone too far i need to go just a little bit further okay i'm taking the kids you know (laughs) those feel like real actual parental discussions rather than just like these stock Mm -hmm. scenes that you're like why wasn't there a scene of the wife having a problem you know oh we might as well squeeze that in there like ethan hawk plays it like he's on broadway doing you know yeah <laughs> like, like uh, uh, the the director and screenwriter have said that they drew a lot of that the character they describe the character ethan hawk's character as like their nightmare of like they are you know they're creative they're work you know film industry crazy like there's their relationships with their spouses and like ethan hawk is like the end of the spectrum like i do not ever want to be in a situation where like i am so consumed so down the rabbit hole in my work that like i am causing this much strife so there is a lot of like personal reflection that I think definitely shows up and I've hammering this point in all podcasts, but like I just gives the film that emotion and heart that like allows it to grow beyond just being like spooky. Film. Yeah. Like I think there is that heart to it that makes it worthwhile to, to follow this journey, even when the main character, you know, we want him to succeed, but we also are seeing him in real time sort of like turn in a direction we don't want him to. Well, but and he's honest and he's, uh, you know, he's not as dumb or ridiculous as a lot of characters in a haunted house thing. It's 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 almost in a conversation with the way George C. Scott is in the changeling <laughs> where he, he's interested in what the ghost wants. Ethan Hawke is on the other side of it, but intelligent to be like, yeah, let's let's get out of here. Let's this isn't even this isn't even <laughs> worth it. Yeah. And that's that's the that's the other interesting point is like another movie could maybe end on like wow, I'm never going to really truly solve this, but I'm going to get out of town and prioritize my family and then like maybe still be have like a poltergeist ending where it's like maybe they're still haunted, but maybe not. But this one, you know, he makes the right choice. He burns everything. He gets out of there. He realizes what's going on and they realize he just accidentally stepped into a trap. That <laughs> when you move is the connective tissue that keeps this thread alive. And I think like his arc really ends when he's talking to senator fred thompson playing the you know the sheriff character who's a horrible republican senator from tennessee who moonlights is a bad actor but um when he's just kind of says like i'm gonna take your advice i'm gonna get out of here i'm gonna prioritize my family is like okay we're over and then the rest of the movie really is just like okay now we just need to let ben gruel have a showcase and we're gonna put 
Ethan Hawke largely the sideline. We're not even going to show him get dismembered by his family, by his daughter, because he's part of this cycle now. And it's really going to elevate into like, okay, it's about the children and Bagul again. Well, now he's famous again. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get that as being kind of like the, oh, okay, we'll have him looking up at his daughter be the last shot. But, you know, it's such an Ethan Hawke centric movie that you really want to ride it with him to the end. So I think that in another movie, those last three minutes wouldn't have felt as sweaty that they're just trying to get those last scares in. But you're like, man, you're telling me I don't get to see Ethan Hawke do anything again. <laughs> I think it's a testament to how well he does before that, mm-hmm. that those scenes that need him to be dead and his daughter to be talking to the other dead folks in Bagul and like entering that space, you know, are hard to watch because you're just like, can you tell me he's just bleeding out so I can <laughs> see him do more work with this character? You know, it, it that's I'm just glad we were spared the image of the cardigan just in threads. <laughs> no, he's not wearing the cardigan when he gets uh, killed with the axe. That's so what that I'm saying. Something... I'm glad that yeah. the cardigan was spared, which by right, the way, I... I have a funny anecdote. about. <laughs> I wanted to see James Ranzone in Sinister 2 pick it up and be like mantle wearing. <laughs> yeah, it. like wear it around his neck like a cape or something. Apparently, Ethan Hawke himself fell in love with the sweater, and the script was changed to spare the sweater because it was when he falls down the attic. Apparently, he was supposed to cut his arm, and like it would have caused a hole. They would have had to put a hole in the sweater, and he's like, "Make it a leg." Yeah, he's, yeah. They had to change it to a leg because he loved the sweater. <laughs> I, he's I like, "Listen, that. I took a huge pay cut. I'm taking the sweater." Yeah, he's like salary like I'll, I'll do this you know scale man just give me the sweater and i voice. i think that we could definitely do that as a good halloween costume a guy with some home <laughs> movies maybe a projector in that sweater if you can find it like man that's that's a well, that's a good look yeah i don't i don't know if you guys got this but i've i felt a uh, <laughs> big connection to christmas vacation when he felt <laughs> on the when he he's yes. out, he's not only in a sweater, he puts on a little projector and falls out of an attic. I was like, "That's oh, good. Man. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's exactly it's the same with the projector. As it's well. a sequel. Man. It's a sequel. It's, it's yeah, gotta yeah. be. They gotta be. Yeah, National Lampoon fans. Sinister Three, really cinematic universe. Yeah. yeah so is this actually a Christmas movie? <laughs> it's in the Christmas cinematic universe. <laughs> what is your uh, unless you know before we get into maybe concluding thoughts? Do you guys have a favorite home video from the film that? you thought was particularly effective or just got like disturbing that you wanted to highlight? I would probably go with the the pool party just for the one reason of, you know, see, I think that's the one where you see people like struggle the most. You see like the actual slowness of the death and the drowning being like so kind of perfunctory rather than like the explosive fire. And then I think that's the first time we really get the reflection of Begul that immediately kind of puts you into that lens of like, oh man, this wasn't only just like a weird snuff film this was a weird demonically inspired snuff film so <laughs> i you know i have some respect for the cursory kind of ah of the lawnmower scene and that be kind of the famous part of this movie but if i had to think of one that would be like oh yeah that's haunting i'd probably go with the you know the pool drowning yeah i mean for me the pool drowning was the one that set me off into the like oh this probably isn't just a person doing this there's something in that pool and it's like turning to look at me. I mean, being my first watch and not really knowing what was going on at all, the the lawnmower one just like wrecked me with that crazy loud noise, yeah. jump scare. Like 
It really it, is just not... a person screaming. Like it is just, like <laughs> yeah, an there's... undiegetic, just like Scott Derrickson going into a mic and going, yeah. Yeah, it's because I later on rewatched it and was like, does the person scream? What's going on? It's, <laughs> it's no, it's no one in the movie itself is screaming at all. It, you're just being screamed at. But definitely the best reaction from Ethan Hawke flying out of his chair and just being like, he sells Geez. it. He sells he is, it. Yeah. He is. Yeah, I, I'm. The, the Haw- Ethan Hawke, whenever he's sweaty and screaming, is my favorite Ethan Hawke. Like, uh, training the Ethan Hawke is fantastic. And before the devil knows you're dead, Ethan Hawke and Sinister. Th- that's like the top three. First reform strapped with a bomb, sweating <laughs> yeah. it through. Yeah. Um, but I would say, I mean, like, the, the like you said, like, the pool and the lawnmower are probably, like, ones that stick out the most. But also to say, like, the, you know, the, the opening, forgive me for the pun, but, you know, the opening kill that literally hangs over the rest of the film it's like in their backyard yeah (laughs) i can't believe they don't move that brand yeah the brand i mean it's (laughs) it's kind of ridiculous my nitpick is that it like no way would the wife not know or like would i don't know there's a lot about it or when it or when it was an active crime yeah (laughs) like is there no like caution tapes still like wrapped around something but um for, I will forgive it. I will forgive it for being just a great, you know. I just wish they didn't piece. label the year on it. Yeah, it, you know, it's only been a year. You you can you know because those film canisters are labeled. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I think that's um, the kind of thing too where like you have to distance yourself from, especially in a movie made by horror movie lovers. That it's just like, you know, especially as we think of our own, you know, horror movie ideas and our mish- our mishmashes that we try to create based off influence. It's like, hey, you know, like what what contrivance could we do that could possibly sell that this woman doesn't know enough about the circumstance? Okay, she wants to stay uninvolved and because she's trying to self-preserve. I think we as audience members, like for all of the other work and setup that this movie does, like this is a good example of one where you're like, man, you know, we just got to give it to him. We like, yeah, you know, like we did, I give it to him. We, I, I want him. this movie to work in the ways that this deserves to work. And you, you got to go for it. Yeah, they, they earn it too at the end by once you realize that the home movies box shows up. I was like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah, you kind of just sealed it. If you make the box itself be a supernatural character, then it can do whatever. It's an untrustworthy box narrator. Yeah, yeah. Like you're, 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 you're allowed to shove that into any old attic. It somehow makes scorpions and snakes appear in what I and think. Well, that's my understanding. Is, that was Bagul, right? The Rottweiler, the, the scorpion, yeah. the snake. That's Bagul just chilling. And I was like, man, if Ethan Ockage just stepped on that snake <laughs> well he kills the scorpion he kills the scorpion i would yeah. say i kind of interpret it as like just like sort of i don't know like weird when evil's around it like his mark manifests almost. it's kind of yeah it's like his yeah. mark like they're almost like uh what's the uh like the grim from like harry potter like they're just symbols of his presence in a sense yeah and it's also a fun little reveal where because they do i remember like the first time those came up i was like that's so random and then it's like, oh, I, oh, okay. There, there's a reason for that. <laughs> like, especially the scorpion. I was like, asked and answered. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the dog showed up, I was getting, I was cluing in a little more. But like, yeah, the snake and the scorpion were like, oh, those are kind of weird red herrings of you know frights, I guess. And then like, oh, I mean, are there scorpions in Pennsylvania? Because that deputy so and so is pretty chill about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, the, oh yeah, you know your normal attic scorpion in rural you, Pennsylvania. You know. <laughs> he was more concerned about squirrels. <laughs> Yeah, squirrels are there. I think I think the one thing I will say, you know, that really ties this in with the playlist, obviously, I think it goes really well with Changeling just for those 
great person in the driver's seat, the haunted house and, and haunted mystery tied together. You know, it flows so well. And this being more of an elevated version of that, going back into what's going to be kind of a half elevated, half kind of well-crafted sit down drama version tomorrow. We're setting up a good sandwich for you. All that to say is a preamble <laughs> to the fact that I think that this movie really is like a, our first Pied Piper movie. And like th- those I think are always so quintessential to Halloween of just like taking advantage of children's innocence and having them have this sense of comfort around a creeper or some mythical character that's trying to literally or figuratively eat their souls or their innocence. Like this movie just feels, you know, like especially how it ends so much on that note feels quintessentially Halloween-y in how it's, <laughs> you know, taking advantage of you know, the fact that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, which is a theme established very early. And these kids don't have to be naughty or nice. It's just <laughs> something that can happen to your kid and affect your community and all of that. And that kind of creepy, you know, lasting feeling of like nobody deserved anything, but children get, you know, pied pipered out of their safe dwellings and into this like nether realm of soul eating, you know, is very uh, the dark side of children's engagement with the kind of darkness of Halloween for me, I guess. <laughs> and I do now want a cardigan for this October. <laughs> yeah, we, we got to rock those. Chris, any other concluding thoughts before I wrap it up? Uh, I'm I'm interested to see, you know, how this will work on a second a second ride. It feels like I went on a really, really awesome roller coaster and now I know all the best drops, but I'm, it's it's one that would be fun to ride again and then even more fun to sit next to someone who's never experienced totally. it. Totally. Yeah, I mean, that would be my recommendation. It's <laughs> like yeah, just this it's a it's a ride. I was I was terrified. I can't imagine what this was like in a movie theater. I don't know. Yeah. In a movie theater, it probably would have been unbearable. And I can understand why the heart rate <laughs> thing is so high, because even though, you know, all these red herrings, the, the way a jump scare works is it's, it's a jump scare. It's not, you know, telegraphed. So it works. Yeah. Um, I seeing it. I saw it in the theater, like I said, with some friends and it was awesome. And I would say if you're going to watch it, like don't watch the trailer, just go in the first time. If you can, you know, if, if it's well, screening if somewhere, go see podcast. it. <laughs> yeah, if you've come this far in the podcast and you haven't seen it already, definitely watch it. It's very fun to watch with people who haven't seen it as well if you're revisiting it. And, you know, I thought we had, you know, we this is kind of a trio of sort of ghost stories that we told. We kind of jumped around, you know, with uh, Blake Mungo was sort of the re like reimagining in a sense, like reinvention, sort of experimenting with the ghost story. Then we kind of went back in time a bit and saw, you know, a classic ghost story. And then with uh, Sinister, I, I kind of feel is like taking that classic ghost story and just, you know, ramping it to 11 and just like making it as dreadful as possible. As Blumhousey in the early <laughs> yeah. 2010s yeah. phrasing as it can be. It's pure, yeah. pure Blumhouse. It's yeah. And this the, is like the, the sequel... Dodge Viper of horror movies. It just <laughs> it's loud. It goes straight. And it's, it's got a it's got a Hemi. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And apparently it was almost a crossover with Insidious. There was apparently an Insinister in the works at one point, which, yeah, you know what, I'm sure I'd, that, I'd check that, it out. That netherworld kind of exists beyond logic and is yeah. the kind of downplay, the downplayed element of both movies if you're trying to, you know, evangelize them, I guess. So <laughs> I think this one, uh, you know, plays well with the previous two and, you know, both changing in this lead very well into the next the next movie, which again is a great little sandwich that we've created for you with Sinister in the middle. So Chris is going to be serving you with a fine 
you know, wheat bread right on top of this <laughs> with a good, you know, and maybe just to, to add a little finisher, a good hammy performance. Yeah. Just and maybe, there, and maybe uh, another good, uh, good jump scare that ended up on that same list of IMDb infographic <laughs> thing. Yeah, it's uh, you know, one of the a, best jump scares. Ever. It's a heady, it's a heady movie for sure. So we'll, <laughs> you know, we'll definitely have some stuff to talk about. So uh, excited to dive in tomorrow too. But I'm just gonna take a breather after uh, you know, yeah. being through. I'm gonna this let my heart gauntlet. rate go down. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to dive in tomorrow three. Mm. <laughs> but we, Jamie got that. <laughs> tomorrow we'll be covering Pitch Perfect three. Thank you so much. Yeah. We'll talk to you then. But, we're gonna have back to back threes. Yeah, Ooh, that's, yeah. The, that's the connection I think we're doing. Yeah. But all right, thanks for for listening, and uh, you know, burn all your home movies. You'll either be embarrassing or get you involved in a cycle of violence you're not into. Don't answer any eye chats from Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> yeah. Never again. Have a good one. Bye. Peace. See you tomorrow.